Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z podcast is a daily recording that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. This episode we are reading the 1923 short story, Tappan's Burrow by Zane Gray. Pearl Zane Gray, born January 31, 1872, death October 23, 1939, was an American author and dentist. He is known for his popular adventure novels and stories associated with the Western genre in literature and the arts. He idealized the American frontier. Writers of the Purple Sage, 1912, was his best-selling book. In addition to the success of his printed works, his books have second lives and continuing influence adapted for films and television. His novels and short stories were adapted into 112 films, two television episodes, and a television series, Dick Powell's Zane Grey Theater. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Tappan's Burrow Chapter 1 Tappan gazed down upon the newly born little burrow with something of pity and consternation. It was not a vigorous offspring of the redoubtable Jenny, champion of all the numberless burrows he had driven in his desert prospecting years. He could not lead it there to die. Surely it was not strong enough to follow its mother. And to kill it was beyond him. Poor little devil, soliloquized Tappan. Reckon neither Jenny nor I wanted it to be born. I'll have to hold up in this camp a few days. You can never tell what a burrow will do. It might fool us and grow strong all of a sudden. Whereupon Tappan left Jenny and her tiny, gray lop-eared baby to themselves and leisurely set about making permanent camp. The water at this oasis was not much to his liking, but it was drinkable and he felt he must put up with it. For the rest, the oasis was desirable enough as a camping site. Desert wanderers like Tappan favored the lonely water holes. This one was up under the bold brow of the chocolate mountains where rocky wall met the desert sand and a green patch of Palo Verdes and mesquites proved the presence of water. It had a magnificent view down a many leaf slope of desert growths across the dark belt of green and the shining strip of red that marked the Rio Colorado and onto the upflung Arizona land, range lifting to range until the sawtoothed peaks notched the blue sky. Locked in the iron fastnesses of these desert mountains was gold. Tappan, if he had any calling, was a prospector. But the lure of gold did not bind him to this wandering life any more than the freedom of it. He had never made a rich strike. About the best he could ever do was to dig enough gold to grub stake himself for another prospecting trip into some remote corner of the American desert. 
Tapanu the Earth's southwest from San Diego to the Pecos River and from Picacho on the Colorado to the Tonto Basin. Few prospectors had the strength and endurance of Tapan. He was a giant in build and at 35 had never yet reached the limit of his physical force. With hammer and pick and magnifying glass Tapan scaled the bare ridges. He was not an expert in testing minerals. He knew he might easily pass by a rich vein of ore. But he did his best, sure at least that no prospector could get more than he out of the pursuit of gold. Tappan was more of a naturalist than a prospector and more of a dreamer than either. Many were the idle moments that he sat staring down the vast reaches of the valleys or watching some creature of the wasteland or marveling at the vivid hues of desert flowers. Tappan waited two weeks at this oasis for Jenny's baby burrow to grow strong enough to walk. And the very day that Tappan decided to break camp, he found signs of gold at the head of a wash above the oasis. Quite by chance, as he was looking for his burrows, he struck his pick into a place no different from a thousand others there and hid into a pocket of gold. He cleaned out the pocket before sunset, the richer for several thousand dollars. You brought me luck, said Tappan to the little gray burrow staggering round its mother. Your name is Janet. You're Tappan's burrow, and I reckon he'll stick to you. Janet belied the promise of her birth. Like a weed in fertile ground she grew. Winter and summer Tappan patrolled the sand beads from one trading post to another, and his burrows traveled with him. Janet had an especially good training. Her mother had happened to be a remarkably good burrow before Tappan had bought her. And Tappan had patience, he found leisure to do things, and he had something of pride in Janet. Whenever he happened to drop into Ehrenberg or Yuma, or any freighting station, some prospector always tried to buy Janet. She grew as large as a medium-sized mule, and a 300-pound pack was no load to discommode her. Tappan, in common with most lonely wanderers of the desert, talked to his burrow. As the years passed, this habit grew, until Tappan would talk to Janet just to hear the sound of his voice. Perhaps that was all which kept him human. Janet, you're worthy of a happier life, Tappan would say as he unpacked her after a long day's march over the barren land. You're a ship of the desert. Here we are with grub and water a hundred miles from any camp. And what but you could have fetched me here? No horse. No mule. No man. Nothing but a camel, and so I call you ship of the desert. But for you and your kind, Janet, there'd be no prospectors and few gold mines. Reckon the desert would be still an unknown waste. You're a great beast of burden, Janet, and there's no one to sing your praise. And of a golden sunrise, when Janet was packed and ready to face the cool, sweet fragrance of the desert, Tappan was wont to say, Go along with you, Janet. The morning's fine. Look at the mountains yonder, Kalanus. It's only a step down there. All purple and violet. 
It's the life for us, my burrow, and tappins as rich as if all these sands were pearls. But sometimes, at sunset, when the way had been long and hot and rough, Tappan would bend his shaggy head over Janet and talk in different mood. Another day gone, Janet, another journey ended, and Tappan is only older, wearier, sicker. There's no reward for your faithfulness. I'm only a desert rat, living from hole to hole. No home. No face to see. Some sunset, Janet, will reach the end of the trail, and Tappan's bones will bleach in the sands, and no one will know or care. When Janet was two years old, she would have taken the blue ribbon in competition with all the burrows of the Southwest. She was unusually large and strong, perfectly proportioned, sound in every particular, and practically tireless. But these were not the only characteristics that made prospectors envious of Tappan. Janet had the common virtues of all good burrows magnified to an unbelievable degree. Moreover, she had sense and instinct that to Tappan bordered on the supernatural. During these years, Tappan's trail crisscrossed the mineral region of the Southwest. But, as always, the rich strike held aloof. It was like the pot of gold buried at the foot of the rainbow. Janet knew the trails and the water holes better than Tappan. She could follow a trail obliterated by drifting sand or cut out by running water. She could send at long distance a new spring on the desert or a strange water hole. She never wandered far from camp so that Tappan had to walk far in search of her. Wild burrows, the bane of most prospectors, held no charm for Janet. And she had never yet shown any especial liking for a tame burrow. This was the strangest feature of Janet's complex character. Burrows were noted for their habit of pairing off and forming friendships for one or more comrades. These relations were permanent. But Janet still remained fancy free. Tappan scarcely realized how he relied upon this big, gray, serene beast of burden. Of course, when chance threw him among men of his calling, he would brag about her. But he had never really appreciated Janet. In his way, Tappan was a brooding, plotting fellow, not conscious of sentiment. When he bragged about Janet, it was her good qualities upon which he dilated. But what he really liked best about her were the little things of every day. During the earlier years of her training, Janet had been a thief. She would pretend to be asleep for hours just to get a chance to steal something out of camp. Tappan had broken this habit in its incipiency, but he never quite trusted her. Janet was a burrow. Janet ate anything offered her. She could fare for herself or go without. Whatever Tappan had left from his own meals was certain to be rich dessert for Janet. Every mealtime she would stand near the campfire with one great long ear drooping and the other standing erect. Her expression was one of meekness, of unending patience. She would lick a tin can until it shone resplendent. On long, hard, 
Bering Trail's Janet's deportment did not vary from that where the water holes and grassy patches were many. She did not need to have grass or grain. Brittle bush and sage were good fare for her. She could eat greasewood, a desert plant that protected itself with a sap as sticky as varnish and far more dangerous to animals. She could eat cacti. Tappan had seen her break off leaves of the prickly pear cactus and stamp upon them with her four feet, mashing off the thorns so that she could consume the succulent pulp. She liked mesquite beans and leaves of willow and all the trailing vines of the desert. And she could subsist in an arid wasteland where a man would have died in short order. No ascent or descent was too hard or dangerous for Janet, provided it was possible of accomplishment. She would refuse a trail that was impassable. She seemed to have an uncanny instinct both for what she could do and what was beyond a burrow. Tappan had never known her to fail on something to which she stuck persistently. Swift streams of water, always bugbears to burrows, did not stop Janet. She hated quicksand, but could be trusted to navigate it if that were possible. When she stepped gingerly, with little inch steps, out upon thin crust of ice or salty crust of desert sinkhole, Tappan would know that it was safe or she would turn back. Thunder and lightning, intense heat or bitter cold, the Sirocco sandstorm of the desert, the white dust of the alkali wastes, these were all the same to Janet. One August, the hottest and driest of his desert experience, Tappan found himself working a most promising claim in the lower reaches of the Panamint Mountains on the northern slope above Death Valley. It was a hard country at the most favorable season, in August it was terrible. The Panamints were infested by various small gangs of desperados, outlaw claim jumpers where opportunity afforded, and out-and-out -out robbers, even murderers where they could not get the gold any other way. Tappan had been warned not to go into this region alone, but he never heeded any warnings. And the idea that he would ever strike a claim or dig enough gold to make himself an attractive target for outlaws seemed preposterous and not worth considering. Tappan had become a wanderer now from the unbreakable habit of it. Much to his amaze, he struck a rich ledge of free gold in a canyon of the Panamints, and he worked from daylight until dark. He forgot about the claim jumpers, until one day he saw Janet's long ears go up in the manner habitual with her when she saw strange men. Tappan watched the rest of that day, but did not catch a glimpse of any living thing. It was a desolate place, shut in, red-walled, hazy with heat, and brooding with an eternal silence. Not long after that Tappan discovered boot tracks of several men adjacent to his camp and in an out-of-the-way spot, which persuaded him that he was being watched. Claim jumpers who were not going to jump his claim in this torrid heat, but meant to let him dig the gold and then kill him. Tappan was not the kind of man to be afraid. He grew wrathful and stubborn. He had six small canvas bags of gold and did not mean to lose them. Still, he was worried. Now, what's best to do, he pondered. I mustn't give it away that I'm wise. 
Rick and I better act natural. But I can't stay here longer. My claim's about worked out. And these jumpers are smart enough to know it. I've got to make a break at night. What to do? Tappan did not want to cash the gold, for in that case, of course, he would have to return for it. Still, he reluctantly admitted to himself that this was the best way to save it. Probably these robbers were watching him day and night. It would be most unwise to attempt escaping by traveling up over the Panamets. Reckon my only chance is going down into Death Valley, soliloquized Tappan, grimly. The alternative thus presented was not to his liking. Crossing Death Valley at this season was always perilous and never attempted in the heat of day. And at this particular time of intense turbidity, when the day heat was unendurable and the midnight furnace gales were blowing, it was an enterprise from which even Tappan shrank. Added to this were the facts that he was too far west of the narrow part of the valley, and even if he did get across he would find himself in the most forbidding and desolate region of the Funeral Mountains. Thus thinking and planning, Tappan went about his mining and camp tasks, trying his best to act natural. But he did not succeed. It was impossible, while expecting a shot at any moment, to act as if there was nothing on his mind. His camp lay at the bottom of a rocky slope. A tiny spring of water made verdure of grass and mesquite, welcome green and all that stark iron nakedness. His campsite was out in the open, on the bench near the spring. The gold claim that Tappan was working was not visible from any vantage point either below or above. It lay back at the head of a break in the rocky wall. It had two virtues, one that the sun never got to it, and the other that it was well hidden. Once there, Tappan knew he could not be seen. This, however, did not diminish his growing uneasiness. The solemn stillness was a menace. The heat of the day appeared to be augmenting to a degree beyond his experience. Every few moments Tappan would slip back through a narrow defile in the rocks and peep from his covert down at the camp. On the last of these occasions he saw Janet out in the open. She stood motionless. Her long ears were erect. In an instant Tappan became strong with thrilling excitement. His keen eyes searched every approach to his camp. And at last in the gully below to the right he discovered two men crawling along from rock to rock. Jenna had seen them enter that gully and was now watching for them to appear. Tappan's excitement gave place to a grimmer emotion. These stealthy visitors were going to hide in ambush and kill him as he returned to camp. Janet, reckon why owe you is a whole lot, muttered Tappan. They'd have got me sure. But now, Tappan left his tools and crawled out of his covert into the jungle of huge rocks toward the left of the slope. He had a six shooter. His rifle he had left in camp. Tappan had seen only two men but he knew there were more than that, if not actually near at hand at the moment, then surely not far away. 
and his chance was to worm his way like an Indian down to camp. With the rifle in his possession, he would make short work of the present difficulty. Lucky Janet's riding camp, said Tappan to himself. It beats hell how she does things. Tappan was already deciding to pack and hurry away. On the moment Death Valley did not daunt him. This matter of crawling and gliding along was work unsuited to his great stature. He was too big to hide behind a little shrub or a rock. And he was not used to stepping lightly. His hobnailed boots could not be placed noiselessly upon the stones. Moreover, he could not progress without displacing little bits of weathered rock. He was sure that King Ears not too far distant could have hurt him. But he kept on, making good progress around that slope to the far side of the canyon. Fortunately, he headed the gully up which his ambushers were stealing. On the other hand, this far side of the canyon afforded but little cover. The sun had gone down back of the huge red mass of the mountain. It had left the rocks so hot Tappan could not touch them with his bare hands. He was about to stride out from his last covert and make a run for it down the rest of the slope when, surveying the whole amphitheater below him, he espied the two men coming up out of the gully headed toward his camp. They looked in his direction. Surely they had heard or seen him. But Tappan perceived at a glance that he was the closer to the camp. Without another moment of hesitation, he plunged from his hiding place down the weathered slope. His giant strides set the loose rocks sliding and rattling. The men saw him. The foremost yelled to the one behind him. Then they both broke into a run. Tappan reached the level of the bench and saw he could beat either of them into the camp. Unless he were disabled. He felt the wind of a heavy bullet before he heard it strike the rocks beyond. Then followed the boom of a colt. One of his enemies had halted to shoot. This spurred Tappan to tremendous exertion. He flew over the rough ground, scarcely hearing the rapid shots. He could no longer see the man who was firing. But the first one was in plain sight, running hard, not yet seeing he was out of the race. When he became aware that he halted and dropping on one knee, leveled his gun at the running Tappan. The distance was scarcely 60 yards. His first shot did not allow for Tappan's speed. His second kicked up the gravel in Tappan's face. Then followed three more shots in rapid succession. The man divined that Tappan had a rifle in camp. Then he steadied himself, waiting for the moment when Tappan had to slow down and halt. As Tappan reached his camp and duffed for his rifle, but Robert took time for his last aim, evidently hoping to get a stationary target. But Tappan did not get up from behind his camp duffel. It had been a habit of his to pile his boxes of supplies and roll up bedding together and cover them with a canvas. He poked his rifle over the top of this and shot the robber. Then, leaping up, he ran forward to get sight of the second one. This man began to run along the edge of the gully. 
tap and fired rapidly at him. The third shot knocked the fellow down. But he got up and yelling as if for sucker, he ran off. Tappen got another shot before he disappeared. Ahu grunted Tappen grimly. His keen gaze came back to survey the fallen robber and then went out over the bench across the wide mouth of the canyon. Tappen thought he had better utilize time to pack instead of pursuing the fleeing man. Reloading the rifle, he hurried out to find Janet. She was coming into camp. Sure you're a treasure, old girl, ejaculated Tappan. Never in his life had he packed Janet or any other burrow so quickly. His last act was to drink all he could hold, fill his two canteens, and make Janet drink. Then, rifle in hand, he drove the burrow out of camp, round the corner of the red wall to the wide gateway that opened down into Death Valley. Tappan looked back more than he looked ahead. And he had traveled down a mile or more before he began to breathe more easily. He had escaped the claim jumpers. Even if they did show up in pursuit now, they could never catch him. Tappan believed he could travel faster and farther than any men of that ilk. But they did not appear. Perhaps the crippled one had not been able to reach his comrades in time. More likely, however, the gang had no taste for a chase in that torrid heat. Tappan slowed his stride. He was almost as wet with sweat as if he had fallen into the spring. The great beads rolled down his face, and there seemed to be little streams of fire trickling down his breast. But despite this, and his labored panting for breath, not until he halted in the shade of a rocky wall did he realize the heat. It was terrific. Instantly then he knew he was safe from pursuit. But he knew also that he faced a greater peril than that of robbers. He could fight evil men, but he could not fight this heat. So he rested there, regaining his breath. Already thirst was acute. Janet stood nearby watching him. Tappan, with his habit of humanizing the burrow, imagined that Janet looked serious. A moment's thought was enough for Tappan to appreciate the gravity of his situation. He was about to go down into the upper end of Death Valley, a part of that country unfamiliar to him. He must cross it, and also the funeral mountains, at a season when a prospector who knew the trails and waterholes would have to be forced to undertake it. Tappan had no choice. His rifle was too hot to hold, so he stuck it in Janet's pack and, burdened only by a canteen of water, he set out, driving the burrow ahead. Once he looked back up the wide mouth canyon, it appeared to smoke with red heat veils. The silence was oppressive. Presently, he turned the last corner that obstructed sight of Death Valley. Tappan had never been appalled by any aspect of the desert, but it was certain that here he halted. Back in his mountain wall camp, the sun had passed behind the high domes, but here it still held most of the valley in its blazing grip. Death Valley looked a ghastly, glaring level of white over which a strange dull leaden haze drooped like a blanket. 
Ghosts of mountain peaks appeared to show dim and vague. There was no movement of anything. No wind. The valley was dead. Desolation reigned supreme. Tappan could not see far toward either end of the valley. A few miles of white glare merged at last into leaden pall. A strong odor, not unlike sulfur, seemed to add weight to the air. Tappan strode on, mindful that Janet had decided opinions of her own. She did not want to go straight ahead or to right or left, but back. That was the one direction impossible for Tappan. And he had to resort to a rare measure, that of beating her. But at last Janet accepted the inevitable and headed down into the stark and naked plain. Soon Tappan reached the margin of the zone of shade cast by the mountain and was now exposed to the sun. The difference seemed tremendous. He had been hot, oppressed, weighted. It was now as if he was burned through his clothes and walked on red-hot sands. When Tappan ceased to sweat and his skin became dry, he drank half a canteen of water and slowed his stride. Inured to desert hardship as he was, he could not long stand this. Janet did not exhibit any lessening of vigor. In truth, what she showed now was an increasing nervousness. It was almost as if she scented an enemy. Tappan never before had such faith in her. Jenna was equal to this task. With that blazing sun on his back, Tappan felt he was being pursued by a furnace. He was compelled to drink the remaining half of his first canteen of water. Sunset would save him. Two more hours of such insupportable heat would lay him prostrate. The ghastly glare of the valley took on a reddish tinge. The heat was blinding Tappan. The time came when he walked beside Janet with a hand on her back, for his eyes could no longer endure the furnace glare. Even with them closed he knew when the sun sank behind the panamits. That fire no longer followed him and the red left his eyelids. With the sinking of the sun, the world of Death Valley changed. It smoked with heat veils, but the intolerable constant burn was gone. The change was so immense that it seemed to have brought coolness. In the twilight, strange, ghostly, somber, silent as death, Tappan followed Janet off the sand, down upon the silt and borax level, to the crusty salt. Before dark, Janet halted at a sluggish belt of fluid, acid, it appeared to Tappan. It was not deep, and the bottom felt stable. But Janet refused to cross. Tappan trusted her judgment more than his own. Janet headed to the left and followed the course of the strange stream. Night intervened. A night without stars or sky or sound, hot, breathless, charged with some intangible current. Tappan dreaded the midnight furnace winds of Death Valley. He had never encountered them. He had heard prospectors say that any man caught in Death Valley when these gales blew would never get out to tell the tale. And Janet seemed to have something on her mind. She was no longer a leisurely, complacent burrow. 
tap and imagine Janet Saint's turn. Most assuredly she knew now which way she wanted to travel. It was not easy for Tappan to keep up with her, and ten paces beyond him she was out of sight. At last Janet headed the acid wash and turned across the valley into a field of broken salt crust, like the roughened ice of a river that had broken and jammed, then frozen again. Impossible was it to make even a reasonable headway. It was a zone, however, that eventually gave way to Janet's instinct for direction. Tappan had long ceased to try to keep his bearings. North, south, east, and west were all the same to him. The night was a blank, the darkness a wall, the silence a terrible menace flung at any living creature. Death Valley had endured them millions of years before living creatures had existed. It was no place for a man. Tappan was now 300 and more feet below sea level in the aftermath of a day that had registered 145 degrees of heat. He knew when he began to lose thought and balance when only the primitive instincts directed his bodily machine. And he struggled with all his willpower to keep hold of his sense of sight and feeling. He hoped to cross the lower level before the midnight gales began to blow. Tappan's hope was vain. According to record, once in a long season of intense heat, there came a night when the furnace winds broke their schedule and began early. The misfortune of Tappan was that he had struck this night. Suddenly it seemed that the air, sodden with heat, began to move. It had weight. It moved soundlessly and ponderously, but it gathered momentum. Tappan realized what was happening. The blanket of heat generated by the day was yielding to outside pressure. Something had created a movement of the hotter air that must find its way upward to give place for the cooler air that must find its way down. Tappan heard the first, low, distant moan of wind and it struck terror to his heart. It did not have an earthly sound. Was that a knell for him? Nothing was surer than the fact that the desert must sooner or later claim him as a victim. Grim and strong, he rebelled against the conviction. That moan was a forerunner of others, growing louder and longer until the weird sound became continuous. Then the movement of wind was accelerated and began to carry a fine dust. Dark as the night was, it did not hide the pale sheets of dust that moved along the level plain. Tappan's feet felt the slow rise in the floor of the valley. His nose recognized the zone of borax and alkali and niter and sulfur. He had reached the pit of the valley at the time of the furnace winds. The moan augmented to a roar, coming like a mighty storm through a forest. It was hellish, like the woeful tide of Acheron. It enveloped Tappan and the gale bore down in tremendous volume, like a furnace blast. Tappan seemed to feel his body penetrated by a million needles of fire. He seemed to dry up. The blackness of night had a spectral, whitish cast, the gloom was a whirling medium, the valley floor was lost in a sheeted, fiercely seeping stream of silt. Deadly fumes swept by, not lingering long enough to suffocate Tappan.
He would gasp and choke, then the poison gas was gone the gale. But hardest to endure was the heavy body of moving heat. Tapping grew blind so that he had to hold to Janet and stumble along. Every gasping breath was a torture effort. He could not bear a scarf over his face. His lungs heaved like great leather bellows. His heart pumped like an engine short of fuel. This was the supreme test for his never proven endurance. And he was all but vanquished. Tappan's senses of sight and smell and hearing failed him. There was left only the sense of touch, a feeling of rope and burrow and ground, and an awful insulating pressure upon all his body. His feet marked a change from salty plain to sandy ascent and then to rocky slope. The pressure of wind gradually lessened, the difference in air made life possible, the feeling of being dragged endlessly by Janet had ceased. Tappan went his limit and fell into oblivion. When he came to, he was suffering bodily tortures. Sight was dim, but he saw walls of rocks, green growths of mesquite, tamarack, and grass. Janet was lying down with her pack flopped to one side. Tappan's dead ears recovered to a strange murmuring, babbling sound. Then he realized his deliverance. Janet had led him across Death Valley, up into the mountain range, straight to a spring of running water. Tappan crawled to the edge of the water and drank guardedly, a little at a time. He had to quell terrific craving to drink his fill. Then he crawled to Janet and loosening the ropes of her pack, freed her from its burden. Janet got up, apparently none the worse for her ordeal. She gazed mildly at Tappan as if to say, well, I got you out of that hole. Tappan returned her gaze. Were they only man and beast alone in the desert? She seemed magnified to Tappan, no longer a plodding, stupid burrow. Janet, you saved my life, Tappan tried to enunciate. I'll never forget. Tappan was struck then to a realization of Janet's service. He was unutterably grateful. Yet the time came when he did forget. Chapter 2 Tappan had a weakness common to all prospectors. Any tale of a lost gold mine would excite his interest, and well-known legends of lost mines always obsessed him. Pegleg Smith's lost gold mine had lured Tappan to no less than half a dozen trips into the terrible shifting sand country of Southern California. There was no water in the region said to hide this mine of fabulous wealth. Many prospectors had left their bones to bleach white in the sun, finally to be buried by the ever-blowing sands. Upon the occasion of Tappan's last escape from this desolate and forbidding desert, he had promised Janet never to undertake it again. It seemed Tappan promised the faithful burrow a good many things. It had been a habit. When Tappan had a particularly hard experience or perilous adventure, he always took a dislike to the immediate country where it had befallen him. Janet had dragged him across Death Valley, 
through incredible heat and the midnight furnace winds of that strange place, and he had promised her he would never forget how she had saved his life. Nor would he ever go back to Death Valley. He made his way over the funeral mountains, worked down through Nevada, and crossed the Rio Colorado above Needles and entered Arizona. He traveled leisurely, but he kept going and headed southeast towards Globe. There he cashed one of his six bags of gold and indulged in the luxury of a complete new outfit. Even Janet appreciated this fact, for the old outfit would scarcely hold together. Tappan had the other five bags of gold in his pack, and after hours of hesitation he decided he would not cash them and entrust the money to a bank. He would take care of them. For him the value of this gold amounted to a small fortune. Many plans suggested themselves to Tappan, but in the end he grew weary of them. What did he want with a ranch, or cattle, or an outfitting store, or any of the businesses he now had the means to buy? Towns soon pulled on Tappan. People did not long please him. Selfish interest and greed seemed paramount everywhere. Besides, if he acquired a place to take up his time, what would become of Janet? That question decided him. He packed the burrow and once more took to the trails. A dim, lofty, purple range called alluringly to Tappan. The Superstition Mountains. Somewhere in that purple mass hid the famous treasure called the Lost Dutchman Gold Mine. Tappan had heard the story often. A Dutch prospector struck gold in the superstitions. He kept the location secret. When he ran short of money, he would disappear for a few weeks and then return with bags of gold. Wherever his strike, it assuredly was a rich one. No one ever could trail him or get a word out of him. Time passed. A few years made him old. During this time he conceived a liking for a young man and eventually confided to him that someday he would tell him the secret of his gold mine. He had drawn a map of the landmarks adjacent to his mine, but he was careful not to put on paper directions how to get there. It chanced that he suddenly fell ill and saw his end was near. Then he summoned the young man who had been so fortunate as to win his regard. Now this individual was in ear do well and upon this occasion he was half drunk. The dying Dutchman produced his map and gave it with verbal directions to the young man. Then he died. When the recipient of this fortune recovered from the effects of liquor, he could not remember all the Dutchman had told him. He tortured himself to remember names and places. But the mine was up in the Superstition Mountains. He never remembered. He never found the lost mine, though he spent his life and died trying. Thus the story passed into the legend of the lost Dutchman. Tappan now had his try at finding it. But for him the shifting sands of the Southern California desert or even the barren and desolate Death Valley were preferable to this superstition range. It was a harder country than the Pinacate of Sonora. Tappan hated cactus and the superstitions were full of it. 
Everywhere stood up the huge saguaro, the giant cacti of the Arizona plateaus, tall like branchless trees, fluted and columnar, beautiful and fascinating to gaze upon, but obnoxious to prospector and burrow. One day from a north slope Tappan saw far a wonderful country of black timber, above which zigzagged for many miles a yellow, winding rampart of rock. This he took to be the rim of the Mogollon Mesa, one of Arizona's freaks of nature. Something called Tappan. He was forever victim to yearnings for the unattainable. He was tired of heat, glare, dust, bare rock, and thorny cactus. The lost Dutchman gold mine was a myth. Besides, he did not need any more gold. Next morning, Tappan packed Janet and worked down off the north slopes of the Superstition Range. That night about sunset, he made camp on the bank of a clear brook with grass and wood in abundance, such a campsite as a prospector dreamed of but seldom found. Before dark, Janet's long ears told of the advent of strangers. A man and a woman rode down the trail into Tappan's camp. They had poor horses and led a pack animal that appeared too old and weak to bear up under even the meager pack he carried. Howdy, said the man. Tappan rose from his task to his lofty height and returned the greeting. The man was middle-aged, swarthy, and rugged, a mountaineer, with something about him that Tappan instinctively distrusted. The woman was under thirty, comely in a full-blown way, with rich brown skin and glossy dark hair. She had wide-open black eyes that bent a curious possession-taking gaze upon Tappan. Care if we camp with you? She inquired, and she smiled. That smile changed Tappan's habit and conviction of a lifetime. No, indeed. Reckon I'd like a little company, he said. Very probably Janet did not understand Tappan's words, but she dropped one ear and walked out of camp to the green bank. Thanks, stranger, replied the woman. That grub sure smells good. She hesitated a moment, evidently waiting to catch her companion's eye, then she continued. My name's Madge Beam. He's my brother, Jake. Who might you happen to be? I'm Tappan, lone prospector, as you see, replied Tappan. Tappan. What's your front handle? She queried, curiously. Fact is, I don't remember, replied Tappan as he brushed a huge hand through his shaggy hair. Ahu? Any name's good enough. When she dismounted, Tappan saw that she had a tall, lithe figure, garbed in rider's overalls and boots. She unsaddled her horse with the dexterity of long practice. The saddlebags she carried over to the spot the man Jake had selected to throw the pack. Tappan heard them talking in low tones. It struck him as strange that he did not have his usual reaction to an invasion of his privacy and solitude. Tappan had thrilled under those black eyes. And now a queer sensation of the unusual rose in him. Bending over his campfire tasks he pondered this and that but mostly the sense of the nearness of a woman. Like most desert men, 
tap a new little of the other sex. A few that he might have been drawn to went out of his wandering life as quickly as they had entered it. This match being took possession of his thoughts. An evidence of Tappan's preoccupation was the fact that he burned his first batch of biscuits. And Tappan felt proud of his culinary ability. He was on his knees, mixing more flour and water when the woman spoke from right behind him. Tough luck you burned the first pan, she said. But it's a good turn for your burrow. That sure is a burrow. Biggest I ever saw. She picked up the burned biscuits and tossed them over to Janet. Then she came back to Tappan's side, rather embarrassingly close. Tappan, I know I'll eat, so I ought to ask you to let me help, she said with a laugh. No, I don't need any, replied Tappan. You sit down on my roll of bed in there. Must be tired, aren't you? Not so very, she returned. That is, I'm not tired of writing Don. She spoke the second part of this reply in lower tone. Tappan looked up from his task. The woman had washed her face, brushed her hair, and had put on a skirt, a singularly attractive change. Tappan thought her younger. She was the handsomest woman he had ever seen. The look of her made him clumsy. What eyes she had. They looked through him. Tappan returned to his task, wondering if he was right in his surmise that she wanted to be friendly. Jake and I drove a bunch of cattle to Maricopa, she volunteered. We sold him, and Jake gambled away most of the money. I couldn't get what I wanted. Too bad. So you're ranchers. Once thought I'd like that. Fact is, down here at Globe a few weeks ago, I came near buying some rancher out and trying the game. You did? Her query had a low, quick eagerness that somehow thrilled Tappan. But he did not look up. I'm a wanderer. I'd never do on a ranch. But if you had a woman? Her laugh was subtle and gay. A woman? For me? Oh, Lord, no, ejaculated Tappan in confusion. Why not? Are you a woman hater? I can't say that, replied Tappan soberly. It's just, I guess, no woman would have me. Faint heart never won fair lady. Tappan had no reply for that. He surely was making a mess of the second pan of biscuit dough. Manifestly, the woman saw this, for with a laugh she plumped down on her knees in front of Tappan and rolled her sleeves up over shapely brown arms. Poor man. Sure you need a woman. Let me show you, she said, and put her hands right down upon Tappan's. The touch gave him a strange thrill. He had to pull his hands away, and as he wiped them with his scarf, he looked at her. He seemed compelled to look. She was close to him now, smiling in good nature, a little scornful of man's encroachment upon the housewifely duties of a woman. A subtle something emanated from her, 
a more than kindness or gaiety. Tappan grasped that it was just the woman of her, and it was going to his head. Very well, let's see you show me, he replied as he rose to his feet. Just then the brother Jake strolled over and he had a rather amused and derisive eye for his sister. Well, Tappan, she's not over fond of work, but I reckon she can cook, he said. Tappan felt greatly relieved at the approach of this brother. And he fell into conversation with him, telling something of his prospecting since leaving Globe and listening to the man's cattle talk. By and by the woman called, come and get it. Then they sat down to eat, and, as usual with hungry wayfarers, they did not talk much until appetite was satisfied. Afterward, before the campfire, they began to talk again, Jake being the most discursive. Tappan conceived the idea that the rancher was rather curious about him and perhaps wanted to sell his ranch. The woman seemed more thoughtful, with her wide black eyes on the fire. Tappan, what will you travel in? Finally inquired Beam. Can't say. I just worked down out of the superstitions. Haven't any place in mind. Where does this road go? To the Tonto Basin. Ever heard of it? Yes, the name isn't new. What's in this basin? The man grunted. Tonto once was home for the Apache. It's now got a few sheep and cowmen, lots of rustlers. And say, if you like to hunt bear and deer, come along with us. Thanks. I don't know as I can, returned Tappan, irresolutely. He was not used to such possibilities as this suggested. Then the woman spoke up. It's a pretty country. Wild and different. We live up under the rim rock. There's mineral in the canyons. Was it that about mineral which decided Tappan with a look in her eyes? Tappan's world of thought and feeling underwent as great a change as this Tonto Basin differed from this dark desert so long as home. The trail to the log cabin of the beams climbed many a ridge and slope and foothill, all covered with manzanita, mescal, cedar, and juniper, at last to reach the canyons of the rim where lofty pines and spruces lorded it over the under forest of maples and oaks. Though the yellow rim towered high over the side of the cabin, the altitude was still great, close to 7,000 feet above sea level. Tappan had fallen in love with this wild wooded and canyon country. So had Janet. It was rather funny the way she hung around Tappan, mornings and evenings. She ate luxuriant grass and oak leaves until her sides bulged. There did not appear to be any flat places in this landscape. Every bench was either uphill or downhill. The beams had no garden or farm or ranch that Tappan could discover. They raised a few acres of sorghum and corn. Their log cabin was of the most primitive kind and outfitted poorly. Madge Beam explained that this cabin was their winter abode and that up on the rim they had a good house and ranch. Tappan did not inquire closely into anything.
If he had interrogated himself, he would have found out that the reason he did not inquire was because he feared something might remove him from the vicinity of Madge Beam. He had thought it strange the beams avoided wayfarers they had met on the trail and had gone round a little hamlet tap and had a spy from a hill. Madge Beam, with woman's intuition, had read his mind and had said, Jake doesn't get along so well with some of the villagers. And I'm no anchor in four gunplay. That explanation was sufficient for Tappan. He had lived long enough in his wandering years to appreciate that people could have reasons for being solitary. This trip up into the Rimrock country bade fair to become Tappan's one and only adventure of the heart. It was not along the murmuring, clear brook of cold mountain water that enchanted him, nor the stately pines, nor the beautiful silver spruces, nor the wonder of the deep, yellow wall canyons so choked with verdure and haunted by wild creatures. He dared not face his soul and ask why this dark-eyed woman sought him more and more. Tappan lived in the moment. He was aware that the few mountaineer neighbors who rode that way rather avoided contact with him. Tappan was not so dense that he did not perceive that the beams preferred to keep him from outsiders. This perhaps was owing to their desire to sell Tappan the ranch and cattle. Jake offered to let it go at what he called a low figure. Tappan thought it just as well to go out into the forest and hide his bags of gold. He did not trust Jake Beam and liked less the looks of the men who visited this wilderness ranch. Madge Beam might be related to a rustler and the associate of rustlers, but that did not necessarily make her a bad woman. Tappan sensed that her attitude was changing and she seemed to require his respect. At first, all she wanted was his admiration. Tappan's longing used deference for women returned to him and when he saw that it was having some strange softening effect upon Madge Beam, he redoubled his attentions. They rode and climbed and hunted together. Tappan had pitched his camp not far from the cabin on a shaded bank of the singing brook. Madge did not leave him much to himself. She was always coming up to his camp on one pretext or another. Often she would bring two horses and make Tappan ride with her. Some of these occasions Tappan saw occurred while visitors came to the cabin. In three weeks, Madge being changed from the bold and careless woman who had ridden down into his camp that sunset to a serious and appealing woman growing more careful of her person and adornment and manifestly bearing a burden on her mind. October came. In the morning, white frost glistened on the split wood shingles of the cabin. The sun soon melted it and grew warm. The afternoons were still and smoky, melancholy with the enchantment of Indian summer. Tappan hunted wild turkey and deer with Madge and revived his boyish love of such pursuits. Madge appeared to be a woman of the woods and had no mean skill with the rifle. One day they were high on the rim with the great timbered basin at their feet. They had come up to hunt deer but got no farther than the wonderful promontory where before they had lingered. Something will happen to me today, Madge Beam said enigmatically. 
Tappan never had been much of a talker, but he could listen. The woman unburdened herself this day. She wanted freedom, happiness, a home away from this lonely country and all the heritage of woman. She confessed it broodingly, passionately, and Tappan recognized truth when he heard it. He was ready to do all in his power for this woman and believed she knew it. But words and acts of sentiment came hard to him. Are you going to buy Jake's ranch? She asked. I don't know. Is there any hurry? Returned Tappan. I reckon not. But I think I'll sell that, she said decisively. How so? Well, Jake hasn't got any ranch, she answered. And added hastily, no clear title. I mean, he's only homesteaded 160 acres and hasn't proved up on it yet. But don't you say I told you? Was Jake I mean to be crooked? I reckon. And I was willing at first. But not now. Tappan did not speak at once. He saw the woman was in one of her brooding moods. Besides, he wanted to weigh her words. How significant they were. Today more than ever she had let down. Humility and simplicity seemed to abide with her. And her brooding boded a storm. Tappan's heart swelled in his broad breast. Was life going to dawn rosy and bright for the lonely prospector? He had money to make a home for this woman. What lay in the balance of the hour? Tappan waited, slowly realizing the charged atmosphere. Madge's somber eyes gazed out over the great void. But, full of thought and passion as they were, they did not see the beauty of that scene. But Tappan saw it. And in some strange sense the color and wildness and sublimity seemed the expression of a new state of his heart. Under him sheared down the ragged and cracked cliffs of the rim, yellow and golden and gray, full of caves and crevices, ledges for eagles and niches for lions, a thousand feet down to the upward edge of the long green slopes and canyons, and so on down and down into the abyss of forest to ravine and ridge, rolling league on league away to the encompassing barrier of purple mountain ranges. The thickets in the canyons called Tappan's I back to linger there. How different from the scenes that used to be perpetually in his sight. What riot of color. The tips of the green pines, the crests of the silver spruces, waved about masses of vivid gold of aspen trees and wonderful cerise and flaming red of maples and crags of yellow rock covered with the bronze of frostbitten sumac. Here was autumn and with it the colors of Tappan's favorite season. From below breathed up the low roar of plunging brook, an eagle screeched his wild call, an elk bugled his piercing blast. From the rim wisps of pine needles blew away on the breeze and fell into the void. A wild country, colorful, beautiful, bountiful. Tappan imagined he could quell his wandering spirit here with this dark-eyed woman by his side. Never before had nature so called him. Here was not the cruelty or flinty hardness of the desert. The air was keen and sweet, 
cold in the shade, warm in the sun. A fragrance of balsam and spruce, spiced with pine, made his breathing a thing of difficulty and delight. How for so many years had he endured vast open spaces without such eye-soothing trees as these? Tappan's back rested against a huge pine that tipped the rim and had stood there, stronger than the storms, for many a hundred years. The rock of the promontory was covered with soft brown mats of pine needles. A juniper tree, with its bright green foliage and lilac-colored berries, grew near the pine and helped to form a secluded little nook, fragrant and somehow haunting. The woman's dark head was close to Tappan as she sat with her elbows on her knees, gazing down into the basin. Tappan saw the strained tensity of her posture, the heaving of her full bosom. He wondered why his own emotions, so long darkened, roused to the suspense of that hour. Suddenly she flung herself into Tappan's arms. The act amazed him. It seemed to have both the passion of a woman and the shame of a girl. Before she hid her face on Tappan's breast, he saw how the rich brown had paled and then flamed. Tappan, take me away. Take me away from here, from that life down there, she cried in smothered voice. Madge, you mean take you away and marry you, he replied. Oh, yes, yes. Marry me, if you love me. I don't see how you can, but you do, don't you? Say you do. I reckon that's what ails me, Madge, he replied, simply. Say so, then, she burst out. All right, I do, said Tappan, with heavy breath. Madge, words don't come easy for me. But I think you're wonderful, and I want you. I haven't dared hope for that, till now. I'm only a wanderer. But it'd be heaven to have you, my wife, and make a home for you. Oh, oh, she returned, wildly, and lifted herself to cling round his neck and to kiss him. You give me joy. Oh, Tappan, I love you. I never loved any man before. I know now. And I'm not wonderful or good, but I love you. The fire of her lips and the clasp of her arms worked havoc in Tappan. No woman had ever loved him, let alone embraced him. To awake suddenly to such rapture as this made him strong and rough in his response. Then all at once she seemed to collapse in his arms and to begin to weep. He feared he had offended or hurt her and was clumsy in his contrition. Presently, she replied, Pretty soon, I'll make you beat me. It's your love, your honesty, that's shamed me. Tappan, I was party to a trick to sell you a worthless ranch. I agreed to try to make you love me, to fool you, cheat you. But I've fallen in love with you, and my God, I care more for your love your respect than for my life. I can't go on with it. I've double-crossed Jake and all of them. Now, am I worth loving? Am I worth having? More than ever, 
dear, he said. You will take me away? Anywhere, anytime, the sooner the better. She kissed him passionately, and then, disengaging herself from his arms, she knelt and gazed earnestly at him. I've not told all. I will someday. But I swear now on my soul, I'll be what you think me. Madge, you needn't say all that. If you love me, it's enough. More than I ever dreamed of. You're a man. Oh, why didn't I meet you when I was 18 instead of now, 28, and all that between? But enough. A new life begins here for me. We must plan. You make the plans and I'll act on them. For a moment she was tense and silent, head bowed, hands shut tight. Then she spoke. Tonight will slip away. You make a light pack that'll go on your saddle. I'll do the same. We'll hide the horses out near where the trail crosses the brook. And we'll run off, ride out of the country. Tappan in turn tried to think, but the world of his mind made any reason difficult. This dark-eyed, full-bosomed woman loved him, had surrendered herself, asked only his protection. The thing seemed marvelous. Yet she knelt there, those dark eyes on him, infinitely more appealing than ever, haunting with some mystery of sadness and fear he could not divine. Suddenly Tappan remembered Janet. I must take Janet, he said. That startled her. Janet, who's she? My burrow. Your burrow. You can't travel fast with that pack beast. We'll be trailed and we'll have to go fast. You can't take the burrow. Then Tappan was startled. What? Can't take Janet? Why? I... I couldn't get along without her. Nonsense. What's a burrow? We must ride fast, do you hear? Madge, I'm afraid I, I must take Janet with me, he said, soberly. It's impossible. I can't go if you take her. I tell you I've got to get away. If you want me, you'll have to leave your precious Janet behind. Tappan bowed his head to the inevitable. After all, Janet was only a beast of burden. She would run wild on the ridges and soon forget him and have no need of him. Something strained in Tappan's breast. He did not see clearly here. This woman was worth more than all else to him. I'm stupid, dear, he said. You see, I never before ran off with a beautiful woman. Of course my burrow must be left behind. Elopement, if such it could be called, was easy for them. Tappan did not understand why Madge wanted to be so secret about it. Was she not free? But then, he reflected, he did not know the circumstances she feared. Besides, he did not care. Possession of the woman was enough. Tappan made his small pack the weight of which was considerable owing to his bags of gold. This he tied on his saddle. 
It bothered him to leave most of his new outfits scattered around his camp. What would Jenna think of that? He looked for her, but for once she did not come in at mealtime. Tappan thought this was singular. He could not remember when Jenna had been far from his camp at sunset. Somehow Tappan was glad. After he had his supper, he left his utensils and supplies as they happened to be and strode away under the trees to the trysting place where he was to meet Match. To his surprise, she came before dark and, and used as he was to the complexity and emotional nature of a woman, he saw that she was strangely agitated. Her face was pale. Almost a fury burned in her black eyes. When she came up to Tappan and embraced him almost fiercely, he felt that he was about to learn more of the nature of womankind. She thrilled him to his depths. Lead out the horses and don't make any noise, she whispered. Tappan complied, and soon he was mounted, riding behind her on the trail. It surprised him that she headed down country and traveled fast. Moreover, she kept to a trail that continually grew rougher. They came to a road, which she crossed and kept on through darkness and brush so thick that Tappan could not see the least sign of a trail. And at length anyone could have seen that Madge had lost her bearings. She appeared to know the direction she wanted, but traveling upon it was impossible owing to the increasingly cut up and brushy ground. They had to turn back and seemed to be hours finding the road. Once Tappan fancied he heard the thud of hoofs other than those made by their own horses. Here Madge acted strangely and where she had been obsessed by desire to hurry she now seemed to have grown weary. She turned her horse south on the road. Tappan was thus unable to ride beside her. But they talked very little. He was satisfied with the fact of being with her on the way out of the country. Sometime in the night they reached an old log shack by the roadside. Here Tappan suggested they halt and get some sleep before dawn. The morrow would mean a long hard day. Yes, tomorrow will be hard, replied Madge as she faced Tappan in the gloom. He could see her big dark eyes on him. Her tone was not one of a hopeful woman. Tappan pondered over this. But he could not understand because he had no idea how a woman ought to act under such circumstances. Madge Beam was a creature of moods. Only the day before, on the ride down from the rim, she had told him with a laugh that she was likely to love him madly one moment and scratch his eyes out the next. How could he know what to make of her? Still, an uneasy feeling began to stir in Tappan. They dismounted and unsaddled the horses. Tappan took his pack and put it aside. Something frightened the horses. They bolted down the road. Head them off, cried the woman hoarsely. Even on the instant her voice sounded strained to Tappan as if she were choked. But realizing the absolute necessity of catching the horses, he set off down the road on a run. And he soon succeeded in heading off the animal he had ridden. The other one, 
however, was contrary and cunning. When Tappan would endeavor to get ahead, it would trot briskly on. Yet it did not go so fast, but what Tappan felt sure he would soon catch it. Thus walking and running, he put some distance between him and the cabin before he realized that he could not head off the wary beast. Much perturbed in mind, Tappan hurried back. Upon reaching the cabin, Tappan called to Madge. No answer. He could not see her in the gloom nor the horse he had driven back. Only silence brooded there. Tappan called again. Still no answer. Perhaps Madge had succumbed to weariness and was asleep. A search of the cabin and vicinity failed to yield any sign of her. But it disclosed the fact that Tappan's pack was gone. Suddenly he sat down, quite overcome. He had been duped. What a fierce pain tore his heart. But it was for loss of the woman, not the gold. He was stunned and then sick with bitter misery. Only then did Tappan realize the meaning of love and what it had done to him. The night wore on and he sat there in the dark and cold and stillness until the gray dawn told him of the coming of day. The light showed his saddle where he had left it. Nearby lay one of Madge's gloves. Tappan's keen eyes sighted a bit of paper sticking out of the glove. He picked it up. It was a leaf out of a little book he had seen her carry, and upon it was written in lead pencil. I am Jake's wife, not his sister. I double-crossed him and ran off with you and would have gone to hell for you. But Jake and his gang suspected me. They were close on our trail. I couldn't shake them. So here I chased off the horses and sent you after them. It was the only way I could save your life. Tappan tracked the thieves to Globe. There he learned they had gone to Phoenix, three men and one woman. Tappan had money on his person. He bought horse and saddle and, setting out for Phoenix, he let his passion to kill grow with the miles and hours. At Phoenix he learned Beam had cashed the gold, $12,000. So much of a fortune. Tappan's fury grew. The gang separated here. Beam and his wife took stage for Tucson. Tappan had no trouble in trailing their movements. Gambling dives and inns and freighting posts and stage drivers told the story of the Beams and their ill-gotten gold. They went on to California, down into Tappan's country, to Yuma and El Cajon and San Diego. Here Tappan lost track of the woman. He could not find that she had left San Diego, nor any trace of her there. But Jake Beam had killed a Mexican in a brawl and had fled across the line. Tappan gave up for the time being the chase of Beam and bent his efforts to find the woman. He had no resentment toward Madge. He only loved her. All that winter he searched San Diego. He made of himself a peddler as a ruse to visit houses, but he never found a trace of her. In the spring, he wandered back to Yuma, raking over the old clues and so on back to Tucson and Phoenix. 
This year a dream and love and passion and despair and hate made happen old. His great strength and endurance were not yet impaired, but something of his spirit had died out of him. One day he remembered Janet. My burrow, he soliloquized. I had forgotten her. Janet. Then it seemed a thousand impulses merged and one drove him to face the long road toward the Rimrock country. To remember Janet was to grow doubtful. Of course she would be gone. Stolen or dead or wandered off. But then who could tell what Janet might do? Tappan was both called and driven. He was a poor wanderer again. His outfit was a pack he carried on his shoulder. But while he could walk he would keep on until he found that last camp where he had deserted Janet. October was coloring the canyon slopes when he reached the shadow of the great wall of yellow rock. The cabin where the beans had lived, or he claimed they lived, was a fallen ruin, crushed by snow. Tappan saw other signs of a severe winter and heavy snowfall. No horse or cattle tracks showed in the trails. To his amaze his camp was much as he had left it. The stone fireplace, the iron pots, appeared to be in the same places. The boxes that had held his supplies were lying here and there. And his canvas tarpaulin, little the worse for wear the elements, lay on the ground under the pine where he had slept. If any man had visited this camp in a year, he had left no sign of it. Suddenly Tappan espied a hoof track in the dust. A small track, almost oval in shape, fresh. Tappan thrilled through all his being. Janet's track, so help me God, he murmured. He found more of them, made that morning. And, keen now as never before on her trail, he set out to find her. The tracks led up the canyon. Tappan came out into a little grassy clearing, and there stood Janet, as he had seen her thousands of times. She had both long ears up high. She seemed to stare out of that meek, gray face. And then one of the long ears flopped over and drooped. Such perhaps was the expression of her recognition. Tappan strode up to her. Janet, old girl, you hung round camp, waiting for me, didn't you? He said, huskily, and his big hands fondled her long ears. Yes, she had waited. She, too, had grown old. She was gray. The winter of that year had been hard. What had she lived on when the snow lay so deep? There were lion scratches on her back and scars on her legs. She had fought for her life. Janet, a man can never always tell about a burrow, said Tappan. I trained you to hang round camp and wait till I came back. Tappan's burrow, the desert rats used to say. And they'd laugh when I bragged how you'd stick to me where most men would quit. But bragged as I did, I never knew you, Janet. And I left you and forgot. Janet, it takes a human being, a man, a woman, to be faithless. And it takes a dog or a horse or a burrow to be great. Beasts? 
I wonder now. Well, old part, we're going down the trail together, and from this day on Tappan begins to pay his debt. Chapter 3 Tappan never again had the old wanderlust for the stark and naked desert. Something had transformed him. The green and fragrant forests and brown-isled, pine-matted woodlands, the craggy promontories and the great colored canyons, the cold granite water springs of the Tonto seemed vastly preferable to the heat and dust and glare and the emptiness of the wastelands. But there was more. The ghost of his strange and only love kept pace with his wandering steps, a spirit that hovered with him as his shadow. Madge Beam, whatever she had been, had showed to him the power of love to refine and ennoble. Somehow he felt closer to her here in the cliff country where his passion had been born. Somehow she seemed nearer to him here than in all those places he had tracked her. So from a prospector searching for gold Tappan became a hunter, seeking only the means to keep soul and body together. And all he cared for was his faithful burrow Janet and the loneliness and silence of the forest land. He was to learn that the Tonto was a hard country in many ways, and bitterly so in winter. Down in the breaks of the basin it was mild in winter, the snow did not lie long, and ice seldom formed. But up on the rim, where Tappan always lingered as long as possible, the Storm King of the North held full sway. Fifteen feet of snow and zero weather were the rule in dead of winter. An old native once warned Tappan, see higher, friend, I reckon you better not get caught up in the rim rock country in one of our big storms. Fair if you do you'll never get out. It was a way of Tappan's to follow his inclinations, regardless of advice. He had weathered the terrible midnight storm of hot wind in Death Valley. What were snow and cold to him? Late autumn on the rim was the most perfect and beautiful of seasons. He had seen the forest land brown and darkly green one day, and the next burdened with white snow. What a transfiguration. Then when the sun loosened the white mantling on the pines, and they had shed their burdens in drifting dust of white, and rainbowed mists of melting snow, and avalanches sliding off the branches, there would be left only the wonderful white floor of the woodland. The great rugged brown tree trunks appeared mightier and statelier in the contrast, and the green of foliage, the russet of oak leaves, the gold of the aspens, turned the forest into a world enchanting to the desert-seared eyes of this wanderer. With tap and the years sped by, his mind grew old faster than his body. Every season saw him lonelier. He had a feeling, a vague elusive foreshadowing that his bones, instead of bleaching on the desert sands, would mingle with the pine mats and the soft fragrant moss of the forest. The idea was pleasant to tap in. One afternoon he was camped in Pine Canyon, a timber slope gorge far back from the rim. November was well on. The fall had been singularly open and fair, with not a single storm. A few natives happening across Tappan had remarked casually that such autumns sometimes were not to be trusted. This late afternoon was one of Indian summer beauty and warmth. 
The blue haze in the canyon was not all the blue smoke from Tappan's campfire. In a narrow park of grass not far from Camp Janet grazed peacefully with elk and deer. Wild turkeys lingered there, loath to seek their winter quarters down in the basin. Gray squirrels and red squirrels barked and frisked and dropped the pine and spruce cones with thud and thump on all the slopes. Before dark, a stranger strode into Tappan's camp, a big man of middle age whose magnificent physique impressed even Tappan. He was a rugged, bearded giant, wide-eyed and a pleasant face. He had no outfit, no horse, not even a gun. Lucky for me, I smelled your smoke, he said. Two days for me without grub. Howdy, stranger, was Tappan's greeting. Are you lost? Yes and no. I could find my way up down over the rim, but it's not healthy down there for me. So I'm heading north. Where's your horse and pack? I reckon they're with the gang that took more of a fancy to them than me. Ahu. You're welcome here, stranger, replied Tappan. I'm Tappan. Ah. Heard of you. I'm just Blade of Anywhere. And I'll say, Tappan, I was an honest man till I hit the Tonto. His laugh was frank for all its note of grimness. Tappan liked the man and sensed one who would be a good friend and bad foe. Come and eat. My supplies are pettier and out, but there's plenty of meat. Blade ate, indeed, as a man starved and did not seem to care if Tappan's supplies were low. He did not talk. After the meal, he craved a pipe and tobacco. Then he smoked in silence in a slow realizing content. The Moro had no fears for him. The flickering ruddy light from the campfire shone on his strong face. Tappan saw in him the drifter, the drinker, the brawler, a man with good in him, but over whom evil passion or temper dominated. Presently he smoked the pipe out and with reluctant hand knocked out the ashes and returned it to Tappan. I reckon I have some news that it interests you, he said. You have, queried Tappan. Yes, if you're the Tappan who tried to run off with Jake Beam's wife. Well, I'm that Tappan. But I'd like to say I didn't know she was married. Sure, I know that. So does everybody in the Tonto. You were just meat for that Beam gang. They had played the trick before. But according to what I hear, that trick was the last fair match beam. She never came back to this country. And Jake Beam, when he was drunk, owned up that she'd left him in California. Some man it worse. Fair Jake Beam came back a harder man. Even his gang said that. Is he in the Tonto now? Queried Tappan with a thrill of fire along his veins. Yep. Bar fair keeps, replied Blade, grimly. Somebody shot him. Ahu, exclaimed Tappan with a deep breath of relief. There came a sudden cooling of the heat of his blood. After that there was a long silence.
happened dreamed of the woman who had loved him. Blade brooded over the campfire. The wind moaned fitfully in the lofty pines on the slope. A wolf mourned as if in hunger. The stars appeared to obscure their radiance and haze. Reckon that wind sounds like storm, observed Blade, presently. I've heard it for weeks now, replied Tappan. Are you a woodsman? No, I'm a desert man. Wall, you take my hunch and hit the trail for low country. This was well meant and probably sound advice, but it alienated Tappan. He had really liked this hearty voiced stranger. Tappan thought moodily of his slowly ingrowing mind, of the narrowness of his soul. He was past interest in his fellow men. He lived with a dream. The only living creature he loved was a lop-eared, lazy burrow, growing old in contentment. Nevertheless, that night Tappan shared one of his two blankets. In the morning the gray dawn broke and the sun rose without its brightness of gold. There was a haze over the blue sky. Thin, swift-moving clouds scud up out of the southwest. The wind was chill, the forest shaggy and dark, the birds and squirrels were silent. Wall, you'll break camp today, asserted Blade. Nope. I'll stick it out yet a while, returned Tappan. But, man, you might get snowed in and up higher that serious. Ahu. Well, it won't bother me. And there's nothing holding you. Tappan, it's four days walk down out of this woods. If a big snow set in, how'd I make it? Then you'd better go out over the rim, suggested Tappan. No. I'll take my chance the other way. But are you manning you'd rather not have me with you? Fair you can't stay higher. Tappan was in a quandary. Some instinct bade him tell the man to go. Not empty-handed, but to go. But this was selfish and entirely unlike Tappan as he remembered himself of old. Finally he spoke. You're welcome to half my outfit, go or stay. That's mighty square of you, Tappan, responded the other, feelingly. Have you a burrow you'll give me? No, I've only one. Ah, then I'll have to stick with you till you leave. No more was said. They had breakfast in a strange silence. The wind brooded its secret in the treetops. Tappan's burrow strolled into camp and caught the stranger's eye. Wall, that's sure a fine burrow, he observed. Never saw the like. Tappan performed his camp tasks. And then there was nothing to do but sit around the fire. Blade evidently waited for the increasing menace of storm to rouse Tappan to decision. But the graying over of sky and the increase of wind did not affect Tappan. What did he wait for? The truth of his thoughts was that he did not like the way Janet remained in camp. She was waiting to be packed. She knew they ought to go. Tappan yielded to a perverse devil of stubbornness. The wind brought a cold mist 
then a flurry of wood snow. Tap and gathered firewood, a large quantity. Blade saw this and gave voice to earnest fears. But Tap and paid no heed. By nightfall sleet and snow began to fall steadily. The men fashioned a rude shack of spruce boughs, ate their supper, and went to bed early. It worried Tap and that Janet stayed right in camp. He lay awake a long time. The wind rose and moaned through the forest. The sleet failed and a soft, steady downfall of snow gradually set in. Tappan fell asleep. When he awoke, it was to see a forest of white. The trees were mantled with blankets of wet snow, the ground covered two feet on a level. But the clouds appeared to be gone, the sky was blue, the storm over. The sun came up warm and bright. It'll all go in a day, said Tappan. If this was early October, I agree with you, replied Blade. But it's only making fair another storm. Can't you hear that wind? Tappan only heard the whispers of his dreams. By now the snow was melting off the pines and rainbows shone everywhere. Little patches of snow began to drop off the south branches of the pines and spruces and then larger patches until by mid-afternoon white streams and avalanches were falling everywhere. All of the snow, except in shaded places on the north sides of trees, went that day and half of that on the ground. Next day it thinned out more until Janet was finding the grass and moss again. That afternoon the telltale thin clouds raced up out of the southwest and the wind moaned its menace. Tappan, let's pack and hit it out of higher, appealed Blade, anxiously. I know this country. Mev, I'm wrong, of course, but it feels like storm. Winter's coming shore. Let her come, replied Tappan, imperturbably. Say, do you want to get snowed in? demanded Blade, out of patience. I might like a little spell of it, seeing it'd be new to me, replied Tappan. But man, if you ever get snowed in higher, you can't get out. That burrow of mine could get me out. You're crazy. That burrow couldn't go a hundred feet. What's more, you'd have to kill her and eat her. Tappan bent a strange gaze upon his companion, but made no reply. Blade began to pace up and down the small bare patch of ground before the campfire. Manifestly, he was in a serious predicament. That day he seemed subtly to change, as did Tappan. Both answered to their peculiar instincts, Blade to that of self-preservation, and Tappan to something like indifference. Tappan held fate in defiance. What more could happen to him? Blade broke out again in eloquent persuasion, giving proof of their peril, and from that he passed to amaze and then to strident anger. He cursed Tappan for a nature-loving idiot. And I'll tell you what, he ended. When morning comes, I'll take some of your grub and hit it out of higher, storm or no storm. But long before dawn broke, that resolution of blades had become impracticable. Both men were awakened by a roar of storm through the forest, 
no longer a moan, but a marching roar, with now a crash and then a shriek of gale. By the light of the smoldering campfire, Tappan saw a whirling pall of snow, great flakes as large as feathers. Morning disclosed the setting of a fierce mountain storm, with two feet of snow already on the ground and the forest lost in a blur of white. I was wrong, called Tappan to his companion. What's best to do now? You damn fool, yelled Blade. We've got to keep from freezing and starving till the storm ends and a crust comes on the snow. For three days and three nights the blizzard continued, unabated in its fury. It took the men hours to keep a space clear for their campsite, which Janet shared with them. On the fourth day the storm ceased, the clouds broke away, the sun came out, and the temperature dropped to zero. Snow on the level just topped Tappan's lofty stature, and in drifts it was 10 and 15 feet deep. Winter had set in without compromise. The forest became a solemn, still, white world. But now Tappan had no time to dream. Dry firewood was hard to find under the snow. It was possible to cut down one of the dead trees on the slope, but impossible to pack sufficient wood to the camp. They had to burn green wood. Then the fashioning of snowshoes took much time. Tappan had no knowledge of such footgear. He could only help Blade. The men were encouraged by the piercing cold forming a crust on the snow. But just as they were about to pack and venture forth, the weather moderated, the crust refused to hold their weight, and another foot of snow fell. Why an elk didn't you kill an elk? demanded Blade sullenly. He had become darkly sinister. He knew the peril and he loved life. Now I'll have to kill and eat your precious Janet. And Meb, she won't furnish meat enough to last till this snow weather stops and a good freeze will make travel impossible. Blade, you shut up about killing and eating my burrow, Janet, returned Tappan in a voice that silenced the other. Thus instinctively these men became enemies. Blade thought only of himself. Tappan had forced upon him a menace to the life of his burrow. For himself, Tappan had not one thought. Tappan's supplies ran low. All the bacon and coffee were gone. There was only a small haunch of venison, a bag of beans, a sack of flour, and a small quantity of salt left. If a crust freezes on the snow and we can pack that flour, we'll get out alive, said Blade. But we can't take the burrow. Another day of bright sunshine softened the snow on the southern exposures and a night of piercing cold froze a crust that would bear a quick step of man. It's our only chance and damn slim at that, declared Blade. Tappan allowed Blade to choose the time and method and supplies for the start to get out of the forest. They cooked all the beans and divided them into sacks. Then they baked about five pounds of biscuits for each of them. Blade showed his cunning when he chose the small bag of salt for himself and let Tappan take the tobacco. This quantity of food and a blanket for each blade declared to be all they could pack. They argue over the guns 
and in the end blade compromised on the rifle, agreeing to let Tappan carry the odd possible chance of killing a deer or elk. When this matter had been decided, Blade significantly began putting on his root snowshoes that had been constructed from pieces of Tappan's boxes and straps and burlap sacks. Reckon they won't last long, muttered Blade. Meanwhile, Tappan fed Janet some biscuits and then began to strap a tarpaulin on her back. What you doing? queried Blade, suddenly. Getting Janet ready, replied Tappan. Ready? For what? Why, to go with us? Hell, shouted Blade, and he threw up his hands in helpless rage. Tappan felt a depth stir within him. He lost his late taciturnity and silent aloofness fell away from him. Blade seemed on the moment no longer an enemy. He loomed as an aid to the saving of Janet. Tappan burst into speech. I can't go without her. It'd never enter my head. Janet's mother was a good faithful burrow. I saw Janet born way down there on the Rio Colorado. She wasn't strong, and I had to wait for her to be able to walk. And she grew up. Her mother died, and Janet and me packed it alone. She wasn't no ordinary burrow. She learned all I taught her. She was different, but I treated her same as any burrow, and she grew with the years. Desert men said there never was such a burrow as Janet called her Tappan's burrow and tried to borrow and buy and steal her. How many times in 10 years Janet has done me a good turn I can't remember. But she saved my life. She dragged me out of Death Valley. And then I forgot my debt. I ran off with a woman and left Janet to wait as she had been trained to wait. Well, I got back in time. And now I'll not leave her here. It may be strange to you, Blade, me caring this way. Janet's only a burrow, but I won't leave her. Man, you talk like that lazy lop-eared burrow was a woman, declared Blade in disgusted astonishment. I don't know women, but I reckon Janet's more faithful than most of them. Wall, of all the stark, staring fools I ever run into you're the worst. Fool or not, I know what I'll do, retorted Tappan. The softer mood left him swiftly. Haven't you sense enough to see that we can't travel with your burrow? Queried Blade, patiently controlling his temper. She has little hoofs, sharp as knives. She'll cut through the crust. She'll break through in places. And we'll have to stop to haul her out, then break through ourselves that would make us longer getting out. Long or short will take her. Then Blade confronted Tappan as if suddenly unmasking his true meaning. His patient explanation meant nothing. Under no circumstances would he ever have consented to an attempt to take Janet out of that snowbound wilderness. His eyes gleamed. We've a hard pull to get out alive and hard-working men in winter must have meat to eat. 
Tappan slowly straightened up to look at the speaker. What do you mean? For answer, Blade jerked his hand backward and downward, and when it swung into sight again, it held Tappan's worn and shining rifle. Then Blade, with deliberate force that showed the nature of the man, worked the lever and threw a shell into the magazine. All the while his eyes were fastened on Tappan. His face seemed that of another man, evil, relentless, inevitable in his spirit to preserve his own life at any cost. I mean to kill your burrow, he said, in voice that suited his look and manner. No, cried Tappan, shocked into an instant of appeal. Yes, I am, and I'll bet, by God, before we get out of hire you'll be glad to eat some of our meat. That roused the slow gathering might of Tappan's wrath. I'd starve to death before I'd, I'd kill that burrow, let alone eat her. Starve and be damned, shouted Blade, yielding to rage. Janet stood right behind Tappan in her posture of contented repose with one long ear hanging down over her gray meek face. You'll have to kill me first, answered Tappan, sharply. I'm good fair anything if you push me, returned Blade, stridently. As he stepped aside, evidently so he could have unobstructed aim at Janet, Tappan leaped forward and knocked up the rifle as it was discharged. The bullet sped harmlessly over Janet. Tappan heard it thud into a tree. Blade uttered a curse. And as he lowered the rifle in sudden deadly intent, Tappan grasped the barrel with his left hand. Then, clenching his right, he struck Blade a sodden blow in the face. Only Blade's hold on the rifle prevented him from falling. Blood streamed from his nose and mouth. He bellowed in hoarse fury. I'll kill you, fear that. Tappan opened his clenched teeth. No, Blade, you're not man enough. Then began a terrific struggle for possession of the rifle. Tappan beat at Blade's face with his sledgehammer fist. But the strength of the other made it imperative that he used both hands to keep his hold on the rifle. Wrestling and pulling and jerking, the men tore around the snowy camp, scattering the campfire, knocking down the brush shelter. Blade had surrendered to a wild frenzy. He hissed his maledictions. His was the brute lust to kill an enemy that thwarted him. But Tappan was grim and terrible in his restraint. His battle was to save Janet. Nevertheless, there mounted in him the hot physical sensations of the savage. The contact of flesh, the smell and sight of Blade's blood, the violent action, the beastly mean of his foe, changed the fight to one for its own sake. To conquer this foe, to rend him and beat him down, blow on blow. Tappan felt instinctively that he was the stronger. Suddenly he exerted all his muscular force into one tremendous wrench. The rifle broke, leaving the steel barrel in his hands, the wooden stock in blades. And it was the quicker-witted blade who used his weapon first to advantage. One swift blow knocked Tappan down. As he was about to follow it up with another, 
tap and kicked his opponent's feet from under him. Blade sprawled in the snow, but was up again as quickly as Tappan. They made at each other, Tappan waiting to strike, and Blade raining blows on Tappan. These were heavy blows aimed at his head, but which he contrived to receive on his arms and the rifle barrel he brandished. For a few moments Tappan stood up under a beating that would have felled a lesser man. His own blood blinded him. Then he swung his heavy weapon. The blow broke Blade's left arm. Like a wild beast, he screamed in pain and then, without guard, rushed in, too furious for further caution. Tappan met the terrible onslaught as before and watching his chance, again swung the rifle barrel. This time, so supreme was the force, it battered down Blade's arm and crushed his skull. He died on his feet, ghastly and horrible change, and swaying backward, he fell into the upbanked wall of snow and went out of sight, except for his boots, one of which still held the crude snowshoe. Tappan stared, slowly realizing. Ahu, stranger Blade, he ejaculated, gazing at the hole in the snowbank where his foe had disappeared. You were going to kill and eat Tappan's burrow. Then he sighted the bloody rifle barrel and cast it from him. He became conscious of injuries which needed attention, but he could do little more than wash off the blood and bind up his head. Both arms and hands were badly bruised and beginning to swell, but fortunately no bones had been broken. Tappan finished strapping the tarpaulin upon the burrow and taking up both his and Blade's supply of food, he called out, come on, Janet. Which way to go? Indeed, there was no more choice for him than there had been for Blade. Towards the rim, the snowdrift would be deeper and impassable. Tappan realized that the only possible chance for him was downhill. So he led Janet out of camp without looking back once. What was it that had happened? He did not seem to be the same Tappan that had dreamily tramped into this woodland. A deep furrow in the snow had been made by the men packing firewood into camp. At the end of this furrow, the wall of snow stood higher than Tappan's head. To get on top without breaking the crust presented a problem. He lifted Janet up and was relieved to see that the snow held her. But he found a different task in his own case. Returning to camp, he gathered up several of the long branches of spruce that had been part of the shelter and carrying them out he laid them against the slant of snow he had to surmount and by their aid he got on top. The crust held him. Elated and with revived hope, he took up Janet's halter and started off. Walking with his root snowshoes was awkward. He had to go slowly and slide them along the crust. But he progressed. Janet's little steps kept her even with him. Now and then one of her sharp hoofs cut through, but not to hinder her particularly. Right at the start Tappan observed a singular something about Janet. Never until now had she been dependent upon him. She knew it. 
Her intelligence apparently told her that if she got out of this snowbound wilderness it would be owing to the strength and reason of her master. Tappan kept to the north side of the canyon where the snow crust was strongest. What he must do was to work up to the top of the canyon slope and then keeping to the ridge travel north along it and so down out of the forest. Travel was slow. He soon found he had to pick his way. Janet appeared to be absolutely unable to sense either danger or safety. Her experience had been of the rock confines and the drifting sands of the desert. She walked where Tappan led her. And it seemed to Tappan that her trust in him, her reliance upon him, were pathetic. Well, old girl, said Tappender, it's a horse of another color now, hey? At length he came to a wide part of the canyon where a bench of land led to a long gradual slope thickly studded with small pines. This appeared to be fortunate and turned out to be so for when Jenna broke through the crust tappan had trees and branches to hold to while he hauled her out. The labor of climbing that slope was such that tappan began to appreciate Blade's absolute refusal to attempt getting Jenna out. Dusk was shadowing the white aisles of the forest when Tappan ascended to a level. He had not traveled far from camp and the fact struck a chill upon his heart. To go on in the dark was foolhardy. So Tappan selected a thick spruce under which there was a considerable depression in the snow and here made preparation to spend the night. Unstrapping the tarpaulin, he spread it on the snow. All the lower branches of this giant of the forest were dead and dry. Tappan broke off many and soon had a fire. Janet nibbled at the moss on the trunk of the spruce tree. Tappan's meal consisted of beans, biscuits, and a ball of snow that he held over the fire to soften. He saw to it that Janet fared as well as he. Night soon fell, strange and weirdly white in the forest and piercingly cold. Tappan needed the fire. Gradually it melted the snow and made a hole down to the ground. Tappan rolled up in the tarpaulin and soon fell asleep. In three days Tappan traveled about 15 miles, gradually descending until the snow crust began to fail to hold Janet. Then whatever had been his difficulties before, they were now magnified a hundredfold. As soon as the sun was up, somewhat softening the snow, Janet began to break through. And often when Tappan began hauling her out, he broke through himself. This exertion was killing even to a man of Tappan's physical prowess. The endurance to resist heat and flying dust and dragging sand seemed another kind from the need to toil in this snow. The endless snowbound forest began to be hideous to Tappan. Cold, lonely, dreary, white, mournful, the kind of ghastly and ghostly winterland that had been the terror of Tappan's boyish dreams. He loved the sun, the open. This forest had deceived him. It was a wall of ice. As he toiled on, the state of his mind gradually and subtly changed in all except the fixed and absolute will to save Janet. In some places he carried her. 
The fourth night found him dangerously near the end of his stock of food. He had been generous with Janet. But now, considering that he had to do more work than she, he diminished her share. On the fifth day Janet broke through the snow crust so often that Tappan realized how utterly impossible it was for her to get out of the woods by her own efforts. Therefore Tappan hit upon the plan of making her lie on the tarpaulin so that he could drag her. The tarpaulin doubled once did not make a bad sled. All the rest of that day Tappan hauled her. And so all the rest of the next day he toiled on, hands behind him, clutching the canvas, head and shoulders bent, plodding and methodical, like a man who could not be defeated. That night he was too weary to build a fire and too worried to eat the last of his food. Next day Tappan was not in the lift to the changing character of the forest. He had worked down out of the zone of the spruce trees, the pines had thinned out and decreased in size, oak trees began to show prominently. All these signs meant that he was getting down out of the mountain heights. But the fact, hopeful as it was, had drawbacks. The snow was still four feet deep on a level and the crust held Tappan only about half the time. Moreover, the lay of the land operated against Tappan's progress. The long, slowly descending ridge had failed. There were no more canyons, but ravines and swales were numerous. Tappan dragged on, stern, indomitable, bent to his toil. When the crust let him down, he hung his snowshoes over Janet's back and wallowed through, making a lane for her to follow. Two days of such heartbreaking toil, without food or fire, broke Tappan's magnificent endurance. But not his spirit. He hauled Janet over the snow, and through the snow, down the hills and up the slopes, through the thickets, knowing that over the next ridge, perhaps, was deliverance. Deer and elk tracks began to be numerous. Cedar and juniper trees now predominated. An occasional pine showed here and there. He was getting out of the forest land. Only such mighty and justifiable hope as that could have kept him on his feet. He fell often and it grew harder to rise and go on. The hour came when the crust failed altogether to hold Tappan and he had to abandon hauling Janet. It was necessary to make a road for her. How weary, cold, horrible, the white reaches. Yard by yard Tappan made his way. He no longer sweat. He had no feeling in his feet or legs. Hunger ceased to gnaw at his vitals. His thirst he quenched with snow, soft snow now, that did not have to be crunched like ice. The pains in his breast were terrible, cramps, constrictions, the piercing pains in his lungs, the dull ache of his overtaxed heart. Tappan came to an opening in the cedar forest from which he could see afar. A long slope fronted him. It led down and down to open country. His desert eyes, keen as those of an eagle, made out flat country, sparsely covered with snow and black dots that were cattle. The last slope. The last pole. Three feet of snow, except in drifts, 
Down and down he plunged, making way for Janet. All that day he toiled and fell and rolled down this league-long slope, wearing towards sunset to the end of his task and likewise to the end of his will. Now he seemed up and now down. There was no sense of cold or weariness. Only direction. Tappan still saw. The last of his horror at the monotony of white faded from his mind. Janet was there, beginning to be able to travel for herself. The solemn close of endless day found Tappan arriving at the edge of the timbered country where wind-bared patches of ground showed long, bleached grass. Janet took to grazing. As for Tappan, he fell with the tarpaulin under a thick cedar and with strengthless hands plucked and plucked at the canvas to spread it so that he could cover himself. He looked again for Janet. She was there, somehow a fading image, strangely blurred. But she was grazing. Tappan lay down and stretched out and slowly drew the tarpaulin over him. A piercing cold night wind swept down from the snowy heights. It wailed in the edge of the cedars and moaned out towards the open country. Yet the night seemed silent. The stars shone white in a deep blue sky, passionless, cold, watchful eyes, looking down without pity or hope or censure. They were the eyes of nature. Winter had locked the heights in its snowy grip. All night that winter wind blew down, colder and colder. Then dawn broke, steely, gray, with a flare in the east. Janet came back where she had left her master. Camp. As she had returned thousands of dawns in the long years of her service. She had grazed all night. Her sides that had been flat were now full. Janet had weathered another vicissitude of her life. She stood for a while in a doze with one long hair down over her meek face. Janet was waiting for Tappan, but he did not stir from under the long roll of canvas. Janet waited. The winter sun rose in cold yellow flare. The snow glistened as with a crusting of diamonds. Somewhere in the distance sounded a long-drawn, discordant bray. Janet's ears shot up. She listened. She recognized the call of one of her kind. Instinct always prompted Janet. Sometimes she did bray. Lifting her gray head, she sent forth a clarion. Hee-haw, hee-haw-haw, hee-haw-ow-ee-ee. That stentorian call started the echoes. They peeled down the slope and rolled out over the open country, clear as a bugle blast, yet hideous in their discordance. But this morning Tappan did not awaken. 